Family and friends of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum want her back. She was on her way home from a friend's house last Friday when she disappeared from the small town of McCleary, Washington. The state patrol is scanning the ground by air. Searchers are combing the town on horseback and checking out nearby trails. This was an evil human being that saw my child and for whatever reason thought they had a right to take her. Melissa Baum's daughter, Lindsay, disappeared on June 26, 2009 just shy of her 11th birthday. FBI agents teamed up with local investigators to fan through McCleary and find something that leads back to Lindsay Baum. I'm here today to share with you that we brought Lindsay home. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. There are no words. The fact is a monster stole my 10-year-old little girl and they murdered her and they dumped her like trash in the woods. So my fight now has turned from looking for my daughter to finding who killed her. I urge anyone that has any information, any knowledge of any kind to please come forward. We need, we need justice. Um, the people who did this to Lindsay deserve to be punished. And the children still out there, your children deserve to be safe. And as long as we allow monsters like this on our streets, none of our children are safe. This is Truth in the Shadow. Welcome to Truth in the Shadow. My name is Peggy Simmons. Welcome to Episode 5 of our series, Investigating the Murder of 10-Year-Old Lindsay Baum. If you haven't heard the prior four episodes, we'd strongly suggest you go back and start from the beginning. I'm joined by Tracy Isaac, who has been busy filming on location in Detroit, and the amount of times I've almost called you to shower you with information. Hello, Tracy. Hey, Peggy. In this episode, we have an interview we recently did with Melissa Baum, Lindsay's mother. Melissa hasn't done much media in recent years, but she came on the podcast today to talk to us about a petition that she's put out to have Lindsay's case moved to the Washington State Attorney General's office. Melissa is very unhappy with how the Grace Harbor Sheriff's Department has handled the case and feels that it needs to be given a fresh set of eyes. And we certainly have our own opinions about the investigation, although it's obviously much easier to critique something from a distance than do the work close up yourself. Uh, but we'll be getting to that later in the episode. We have quite a bit going on right now. Since you've been gone, our email inbox has flooded, and we now have a team of helpful people who are helping us to answer some of the questions we've had about Lindsay's case. We also have a private investigator, Brandon Janice, who has offered his services to help in the investigation. And you were telling me that we've also received some listener tips that may correlate with other unsolved homicide cases of young girls in the area, is that right? We have, and I tell you, the coincidences are beyond creepy. But while we're researching that arena for a future episode, we've also been paying attention to the court proceedings of Paul Beaker in Grays Harbor for the sexual assault in 2003, and it's not going well for justice. Ugh, yeah, let's do the Beaker briefs now. From what I understand, Grays Harbor has dropped all of the charges except the initial sexual assault charge? That is correct. That is some bullshit. Wasn't there some legislation that went into place that would retroactively affect this since it was a charge against a minor? From what I understood, the former Grays Harbor deputy prosecuting attorney filed the kidnapping charge outside of the statute of limitations. They were three months too late. Because the current prosecution added eight more extended charges to the kidnapping charge, 
all of the added charges have to be dropped due to the kidnapping charge being outside that time limit. Good to know. So much for justice. I really feel for this victim. Paul Beaker is set to go to trial on June 1st, and I believe it is an open courtroom if we attend in person, but it will not be on Zoom. We also had an anonymous tip from a listener who knew Paul Beaker pretty well, and this listener wanted to let us know that they remember Paul driving a blue Geo Metro. So in terms of vehicles for him, we now have a 1989 blue Ford F-250 truck, a 1994 blue Geo Metro, a 1988 uh, Jeep Cherokee and a 2000 Jeep Cherokee. I believe the 2000 Jeep Cherokee was red and his ex-wife's gray Honda. And all of those vehicles would have been at his disposal at the time that Lindsay went missing. This tipster also said Paul Beaker and his family used to hike and camp at Mount Rainier a lot, which if listeners don't know, it's just to the west of Manasash Ridge. The family was into hiking and they had ATVs. They would ride around on the property he owned with his wife in McCleary at the time. Very interesting. Another tip that was sent in was about stressors in Paul's life. According to this tip, Paul's indicated stress in 2003 could be around his wife's pregnancy. But they did also mention that in 2000, Paul's brother Stephen died in a drowning accident. The team also found out a bit of his history around his workplaces. They sure did. We know he works for Mac Miller doing industrial HVAC, and we know he was a soccer coach for Elmo's Youth City Soccer Club. But we also found out that he worked for a company called Air Handlers, Inc., doing sheet metal work, and he was a tech specialist at TechLine. And TechLine is a local company to that area, right? They're attached to a cell phone retail store, but they also provide tech for companies. We use a tech company at my day job, and they're the people to call when there's an issue with our computers, like if our Dropbox isn't syncing or we need extra email accounts set up. This company can go in remotely to see and fix the problem. So safe to say Paul knows more about computer technology than most, and perhaps that's why he's near impossible to trace online. And if I remember correctly, there was a strange email that we found that came up during our perusal of the search warrants, right? You're talking about blackprofit01 at yahoo.com. This is something our investigator Brandon brought up as well. He's researching the IP address right now to see if he can find anything using his resources. That email was sent on September 4th, 2009 to the contact at findlindsaybaum.com at 6.26 a.m., and the sender identifies himself as Black Prophet. The writer asks and requests to speak to Lindsay Baum's parents and states the email is to inform them that Lindsay is still alive and that they can help get her back home. I feel like I need to interject to say what a cruel thing to do to Lindsay's mom. We've been speaking with Melissa for a few years, and I've even witnessed the unintentional helpfulness of people wanting to solve this case. Emailing the victim's mother and describing atrocious acts they believe may have happened is nothing but traumatizing, especially when presented as a wild theory and not a substantial tip to be followed up on. Melissa has even had to apply for no contact orders against some of these people. Thankfully, she has some advocates, and now we're screening these tips to protect her, too. Interesting time frame, by the way, 626 a.m., and it's the same date as when she went missing. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Uh, Me neither until you said it. (laughs) (laughs) Weird. The FBI in Grays Harbor followed up on this tip. There was nothing in the search warrant stating the conclusion. So this is just another dead end from a person who maybe was just seeking attention. Or was it somebody who knew technology well enough to cover their tracks and make this email and IP address untraceable? Hard to say. Like so many other pieces to this case, it may just be another nothing burger. (laughs) 
I've been patiently waiting to use that phrase of yours. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard with these kinds of things to tell if it's meaningful or not. Um, Unfortunately, we don't know what the police found out about it. We know they looked into it. For all we know, they looked into it and it was uh, put to bed. But, I mean, it's worth taking into consideration that Paul Beaker knew how to use a computer. Um, That about wraps up all the updates. Uh, So maybe now would be a good time for us to turn to the interview and hear what Melissa has to say about what happened on the evening of June 26, 2009. And how authorities assumed at first that Lindsay was a runaway. Here's that interview now. All right, so we are here talking with Melissa Baum, Lindsay's mother. And Melissa, if you want to tell us what happened the day Lindsay went missing. I knew she would have been home by dark, and she wasn't. Um, so when I called, it took a little, it took a few minutes. I don't remember exactly how long for the officer to call me back. And then I was informed that he was at home at his house outside of town in the county. And it was 30 to 40 minutes from the time I first called to when he actually showed up. Oh, and again, wow. initially just thinking Lindsay ran away. So, um, but, but I kept trying to say at that point, like when I called you, it's because I knew something was wrong. So I time. waited. I know my kid. No, we weren't fighting. No, because he kept saying, well, were you and Lindsay fighting? Were Josh and Lindsay fighting? Josh and Lindsay were always fighting. <laughs> Lindsay wasn't going to run away from home. She didn't take her phone. She didn't have any money. The bus had already stopped running in town. So there was no way for her to get out of town. So the only way for her to leave town would be in a vehicle with somebody. Which, regardless of if she went willing or not, is still kidnapping. So Absolutely. she left out. Somebody took her. Somebody, it, it was just. So who was the first officer to respond? Uh, the McQuarrie sergeant. Okay. And what did he end up doing? What was his immediate, after he well, arrived? immediately he was just asking, he knew, he knew both my kids. Um, they all did. It's a small town. We lived right behind the police department, pretty much. Um, and at first, he just thought Lindsay was was mad and, and not wanting to come home, whether she was mad at me or mad at her brother, or, which was my initial thought, too, up until dark. Right. But once it was dark, I knew, like, there's no way. She didn't take her cell phone with her. She would not have stayed gone from her cell phone. I mean, the, in the several months that she had had that cell phone, it never left her side. Like to this day, I'm, I still can't even understand how she happened to leave it at home that night because she wouldn't, she'd take her charger with her if she felt like it was going to need charge before she got back. It was just a weird night. She didn't take her phone and she didn't take our dog. So, I mean, she was expecting to run down and come straight back. Otherwise she would have taken the dog. She would have taken her phone. Like I guarantee you, if she would have run away, she would not have run away without her phone and our German Shepherd. She just wouldn't have done it. Up until midnight, it was only Sergeant Graham. And then Chief Crumb came in. And then in the wee hours of the morning, I want to say around five-ish, I think. I, I don't, it was a haze at this point. Um, then others started coming in and joining. Okay. And what did they end up doing? It just became a big search at that point. Was that when the dog search took place, that first dog search? Yeah. Okay. Were they searching? For the first several weeks, Lindsay was considered a runaway. But, like, the original posters and flyers put out by the police were for a runaway. 
Did you think she was a runaway? No, I knew she was never a runaway. There was never a thought or a doubt in my mind that she didn't run away. Josh, I would have I would maybe thought that he'd run away, but I, Lindsay would not have ran away. Like, she would not have ran away. Lindsay, Lindsay and I didn't have that kind of... She was, you know, getting into that age where she was starting to give me more mouth than she ever had kind of thing, but Lindsay was a mama's girl. She wasn't running away, and then there was no reason to. She had a good day that day, minus the argument between her and Josh on the way to Kara's, which was just a stupid argument that they had on a daily basis. It wasn't like they were having a knockdown drag out. She broke the chain on his bike and dumped it on the side of the road with the intent of picking it up on the way home, and that made him mad. Kid fights. That's all it was, was she took his bike and the chain broke, so she set it on the side of the road and said, I'll get it on the way back. And Josh didn't like that. He's like, no, take it home now. That was was all of it. So if they thought that she was a runaway, um, I had heard that they had really turned the the, the town upside down looking looking in houses. Were, were there searches that were going on? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, they did search. They just didn't, I, I don't even know how to describe the differences. They just, they didn't have any evidence to prove that she was abducted at that point. Got it. No. So, kind of like, they refused to do an Amber Alert, but they did a Cans Alert. Right. Or, kind of like, they never had suspects. They only had persons of interest. I never heard them use the word suspect until the day they notified that Lindsay had been found, or identified. It's the first time I ever heard them use the word suspect. It just happened to be the same person that had been their person of interest for nine years. We thought we'd take a moment to discuss what we've learned so far. And just for the sake of clarity, the person of interest that Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department mentioned to to Melissa uh, was Dale, and that is the person that we spoke to on episode two. He was basically their person of interest for at least nine years. Apparently, Melissa knew virtually nothing about him at the time. Which is crazy when you consider that web sleuths were on to Dale pretty early. I also think it's worth taking a moment to look at the agencies that were called in, just to keep our listeners on track. Yeah, lots of moving pieces. So Officer Graham, who responded to Melissa's initial call, was from the McCleary Police Department. And just to give you guys an idea, this is a very small department with a couple of officers, and it pretty much concerns itself with traffic violations. And the agency that took over at some point in the early hours of June 27th were from the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department. The main players there are Sheriff Rick Scott and Under Sheriff Brad Johansson. The Sheriff's Department actually investigates major crimes like kidnapping and murder in the Grays Harbor County area. Yeah, so when Melissa talks about getting the case moved, she's talking about moving it from the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department. And if that weren't confusing enough, we also have the Kittitas Sheriff's Department, in whose jurisdiction Lindsay's remains were left. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that Lindsay's case spans multiple counties and two FBI jurisdictions in Washington state. It's clear that our offender has done him some serial killer research. For real. But it's worth pointing out that the agency that really kind of messed this up from the jump was McCleary's Police Department. They're the agency that responded to the initial call. There's a 50-minute delay between Melissa making the report and Officer Graham arriving at the house, which is pretty inexcusable. 
Yeah, in a 2006 child abduction murder study undertaken by the Washington State Attorney General's Office, they found that 79% of children abducted were murdered within three hours of being taken. Yeah. We know that Lindsay went missing somewhere between 9.40 p.m. when she left Kara's house and 10 p.m. when Melissa and others started actively looking for her. Yeah, because basically if she'd been on the street at that point, somebody would have seen her. So... um, Say she was taken at around 10 p.m., which is pretty much the latest that she could have been taken. That means that by 10.50, which is when Melissa State's Officer Graham arrived, Lindsay would have been missing for almost an hour. By the time McCleary Police Chief Crum was called in at midnight, Lindsay was gone for two hours. And by the time the Sheriff's Office got involved at 5 a.m., Lindsay had been missing for seven hours. Yeah, that hour loss to Graham's response time was costly. By the time they started taking this case seriously, the perpetrator could have been basically halfway through the commission of the crime or even partway to Manistash. And recently in McCleary, the new mayor fired the police chief and the city council stated that Elma police would be utilized in operations from McCleary with only a 10-minute response time. So how is it that Elma, a town nearby McCleary, can respond in 10 minutes, but it took McCleary Police Department 50 minutes in response time? Isn't the police department right next to Lindsay's house? Uh, Yeah, it is. You could actually see the police department from Lindsay's house. And it is situated right beside the Shell Station on the main drag through town, but also right near Maple Street where, you know, we know that she was walking. But apparently the station was unmanned at the time and Sergeant John Graham was at his home off of Elma Hickland Road. This is a road that Peggy and I have gotten lost on on more than one occasion. Anyway, Officer Graham was having dinner and putting his kids to bed which may be pretty typical of small-town police departments. So, you know, I guess we could sort of give Graham a break here. Yeah, that's kind of what I've heard, too. Now, is this the same officer who's in the photo with Lindsay and her brother for the Adopt-A-Cop event, the one who knew the family well? Yeah, that's him. And he was brought up a lot in local conspiracies as well as online because people thought he may have had something to do with Lindsay's disappearance himself. They thought that that 50-minute gap was actually very suspicious. To make matters worse for Officer Graham, he owned a personal vehicle that was white and seemed to be personally invested in the case. So all of that did not look good for the poor guy. Well, I would hope he was invested being the sergeant of the department. And as we know now, having a white car means statistically nothing. I'd actually heard he moved out of town eventually due to this case. Uh, Does Dale know Officer Graham? And what's his opinion on the theory of Graham having something to do with it? Uh, Dale knows all the law enforcement in the area, and when I asked him recently (laughs) what he thought of John Graham being a potential suspect, he said, no way, he's one of the good cops. From what I've heard, Police Chief Crum and Sergeant Graham were both highly invested in finding Lindsay. I'm honestly surprised to hear Dale say that. Um, Before we get back to the interview, I wanted to ask you about Melissa's complaint about there not being an Amber Alert issued. So this is a little confusing for me because there was no license plate attached to Lindsay's disappearance. And my understanding is that in order for an Amber Alert to be issued, there needs to be a license plate attached to the kidnapping. Is that correct? Uh, Kind of. So they've changed the Amber Alert. That's the nationwide alert that they use. Um, They've changed it kind of differently for each state. Uh, And Washington changed theirs in 2010. So the criteria now is children 17 and under who are known to have been abducted and not a runaway or throwaway, 
uh, in danger of serious bodily injury or death. Activation should occur within four hours of the event unless not reported to law enforcement within that time frame. There needs to be enough of a descriptive information available to give to the public to assist in the recovery of the child. So that's probably where you're getting the license plate part of it. Um, and it needs to be reported to and investigated by law enforcement. So what is the importance of there being an Amber Alert versus a CANS Alert? Like, what is a CANS Alert, actually? You know what? They actually don't even use the CANS Alert. Um this program is through Washington State Patrol, and they actually have an endangered child alert now. Uh, and so the CANS alert was kind of a fleeting thing that they called in, pretty much stating like they don't know that she was abducted, but that obviously she's missing. What does CANS stand for? I believe it's child abduction. Ugh, fuck, I don't even remember. I, so I tried to look this up on the interwebs. Me too. And I had a hell of a time even finding out what the acronyms stand for. Me too. It was crazy. I was like, yeah. "Well, I leave this to I leave this to uh, Peggy. She knows this stuff better." <laughs> yeah, no, and and I couldn't find it. Um, from what I understand, it's a, that was an outdated system that they were using, um, just essentially to put it into the system, saying that this child is missing and this is what she looks like. Yeah, which is kind of it's similar to the endangered child. Uh, or endangered missing. The three levels that they use is essentially the endangered missing person, and you have your amber alert, where you pretty much know it was an abduction. Um, And then you have the silver alert, which is for anybody over 60 that goes missing. Got it. So under this criteria, she would have been... she would have worked as an amber alert because of her age, but they don't have a lot of information to help uh, the public in terms of identifying her kidnapper beyond knowing that she's missing, correct? Yeah, I think that's kind of where that falls into is that they need to have enough descriptive information available to give to the public to assist in the recovery. And whereas they really didn't have any information about Lindsay. Mm-hmm. They just knew she was gone. Yeah, I mean, obviously getting information out there as soon as possible is key to a good outcome for sure. And I guess the thing with Amber Alert is just that it's famous. Like That's the only thing I've ever been able to figure out why everybody's so, you know, f- focused on Amber Alerts. Like I get Amber Alerts on my phone for sure. Um, I don't know whether back in 2009 they even did that, that I can recall. I don't think so. I, I want to say they instituted that whole part of it in 2010. I know they had the Amber Alert in Washington in 2003, and that's when it was actually brought into their protocols, but yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and on the subject of things being done in a timely manner, in this next piece of the interview, Melissa talks about a suspect we've called the volunteer. And as you may recall, this suspect had claimed he was in another town when Lindsay went missing, only to turn up on surveillance footage in McCleary around the time and place of the disappearance. So how frequently do you think you heard from the police in the years between Lindsay's disappearance and the discovery of her on Manistash? Every few months I'd ask for a meeting, for a catch-up, and I'd get one every once in a while, but more often than not, they were canceled or rescheduled. How do you think was handled as a suspect? Well, it took him forever. I mean, Lindsay had been gone a couple years by the time they even searched his property. Which is so strange because I was just looking on one of the forums and they were talking about 
while they were talking about the Shell Station surveillance footage, and it said that they had, the cashier had said that they got that footage a couple of days after Lindsay disappeared. And so it, he wasn't looked at until it was November of 2011. That's strange to me. Well, for me, that all was just strange because the night she disappeared, I was standing at the end of my driveway because Tara and Scott were out driving around looking. And at that point, Sergeant Graham was out driving around looking. And my son and I were at home and I was standing at the end of my driveway and I had my home phone, my cell phone and Lindsay's cell phone. And I saw him driving up my street just real slow. And then he kind of curved off and went down. Um, that first street that runs back behind the baseball fields, right across. Yeah, that's that's first street. And he went down there, and so I was watching him because he was going so slow. I'm like, I didn't know who he was. And so I saw him stop at the entrance to the clearing in the wooded area where all the kids often play. And so I walked down there like, who the heck is this? And I walked down towards him as I approached the car. He says, are you mom? And I said, yes. And I noticed that he had a fire department jacket on, like a windbreaker from the fire department. And he said something like, well, I was, I was dry. I was just sitting in the ambulance and I heard it over the radio. So I, I parked the ambulance and came to help. And then I went out behind Simpson mill and stuff. Right? We drove around looking. I went, we went out behind the mill walking and I, I mean, yes, I'm not going to lie. I had an eerie feeling, but it was weird because the next day when I mentioned that to law enforcement, they're like, who are you talking about? And I said, what do you mean? Who are you talking about? He's some guy that was apparently in the ambulance last night for the fire department and he was wearing an Elma fire department jacket like what do you mean you don't know who so I guess that's when they started trying to find out who went looking for me I, I at that point had no clue who he was I'd never actually been in the jewelry store it's just kind of weird that you might have raised that with with police the next day but they only searched his place in November 2011 uh, presumably based on the fact that he lied, but based on what you're saying, Peggy, they got that footage within days of Lindsay going missing. That's what was so reported they... from the cashier, and it was in a forum that was dated, and I think the date was somewhere in 2009. So I was surprised when I saw it because I assumed that they didn't get the footage until 2011, and that's why they decided to look at him. See, those but... are details they never have shared with me. Never been privy to any of that. Yeah, the interesting thing about that too is that I think one of the people who used to work there, Melissa, told Peggy that he had cameras outside of his store, and we don't know whether the the police ever got that footage. Yeah, I have no idea. Because theoretically, she was walking on Maple, right? Like, if she was walking on Maple and he had a camera outside his store, that she should have been visible there. Welcome back to Truth in the Shadow. We're currently listening to an interview with Lindsay's mom, Melissa. In this section of the interview, Melissa talked about the suspect that we refer to as the volunteer. He came to the attention of law enforcement when he was caught in a lie about his alibi. He claimed he was taking a class in a nearby town when Lindsay went missing. Meanwhile, surveillance footage shows him a block from Maple at 9.30, minutes before she disappeared. I was actually surprised to hear that Melissa mentioned to law enforcement that she ran into the volunteer the very next day and that she was told he hadn't been dispatched by them at all. I knew that she was told he hadn't been dispatched by them. I wasn't aware that she told them that the very next day. 
because we all know that getting involved in the search is a cue taken from the serial killer playbook. So you'd think law enforcement would be all over that. Especially if he hadn't been asked to assist in the search. I've been thinking about this a bit since I've been away, and I remember that the person Melissa mentioned the volunteer to and the fact that he was out and about that night was Chief Crumb. I kind of wonder whether that piece of information just never made it to the sheriff's department. Kind of wonder too, and obviously they realized he was a good suspect, but it was two years later. The frustrating thing, as you mentioned, is that they had the shell footage from about June 27th, 2009. And assuming they acquired the Mike's Market footage at the same time, and honestly, if they didn't, it would have been taped over or lost, how did they fail to notice that the volunteer wasn't where he claimed to be? And as you were saying, if the volunteer had cameras on his own store, Lindsay and maybe whoever took her may have been on that footage. But as far as we know, no one ever looked at that footage if he did have cameras on his store at that time. No, and trying to figure out the quality of the sheriff's investigation is kind of hard, honestly, because we don't have the case file. We do have access to almost all the warrants they served in this case, and it's fair to say that the sheriff's department was very active, uh, in addition to Dale, who was a very good suspect on paper. I mean... What an amazing suspect he is on paper. <laughs> Police did the usual registered sex offender roundup, and they did take a good hard look at quite a few skeevy people in McCleary. Yeah, the sheer volume of search warrants sought and carried out by law enforcement indicates that they were taking the disappearance very seriously. I don't see them doing this much if they truly believed she was a runaway. But clearly there was a perception out there that she was a runaway because it's been mentioned by a number of people to us. Yeah, and even Dale mentioned that to us. In the next section of her interview, Melissa discusses the frustrations she's had communicating, or not communicating, with the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department, and why she's petitioning to have the case moved to the Attorney General's office. The law enforcement doesn't even talk to me, let alone give me information, which is why we are where we are today. If well, the sheriff or the sheriff's department just had the common decency to treat me like a human that deserved some justice and some respect, and they chose to communicate with me rather than belittle me or brush me off, we would not be where we are right now. I don't have a problem with law enforcement. I don't hate law enforcement. I have always had an extremely strong appreciation of law enforcement. It's this particular brand of law enforcement that has become my issue. And I'm tired of being brushed aside. I'm tired of my daughter not being a priority after 12 years. Because for 10 years, I understood that emergencies came up and other things took priority, but I trusted them for 10 years to get justice. And they never did. So when I started putting pressure on them because it'd been so long, then they really started getting crappy with me and trying to do, informing me that they don't have any updates, they don't have to give me any updates, they're not going to share anything, they're not going to do anything. But for the undersheriff to tell me in a raised voice, you either trust us or we don't. Not every case gets solved, and you just have to accept the fact that not all cases get solved. And oftentimes, even when we know who did it, there's no way to prove it. And how did this come up? What, what was... What was I had a question that my therapist had asked me that she knew someone, and I don't know anything beyond this, but she knew someone that believed that, that he, that someone had assaulted the client and they wanted to report and that they had made a couple of attempts to contact somebody at the sheriff's department 
because it happened here in Grace Harbor. Mm-hmm. And she was asking me, do you know a specific person she can call and ask for? And I gave her the name of Brad Johansson. And then I called and left him a message saying, uh, if you could give me a call back, I have a couple questions. And I specifically said in my message, this is not about Lindsay or her case. I specifically said that in my message. But when he called me back, he had the defensive tone the minute I said hello. He was like a tiger ready to prep. And it just went downhill from there. The call lasted over an hour. And he continuously told me, you either trust me or you don't. Can't help you if you don't. Sometimes you just don't solve them all. And sometimes even when you know who, you can't prove it. And we don't owe you anything. And we don't have to give you an update until we have an update. And we're not going to share any information. And we're not going to answer your questions. And I'm tired of it. So when they said... Sometimes we may know who did it, but we may not be able to prove it. Was this pre-Paul Beaker getting arrested? No, this was, this was after he got arrested, and that's exactly who he was referring to. Paul was arrested June 15th or 16th, right before the anniversary of Lindsay's disappearance. Has law enforcement sat down with you since his arrest to discuss how he may be connected? No. No. Law enforcement hasn't sat down with me in over three years. So nobody has sat down with you to say, hey, how might Lindsay have known Paul Beaker or anything like that? No. They called me the day that they'd made the arrest to tell me that they had made an arrest, and they gave me his address and his name, and they repeated it for me to write down, and they spelled his last name and said that he looked really good for Lindsay, and that was that. We've been hearing from Melissa Baum, missing 10-year-old Lindsay Baum's mother. Melissa recently released a petition asking that her daughter's case be moved from Grace Harbor Sheriff's to the Washington State Attorney General's cold case unit. I'm frankly stunned that they haven't sat down with Melissa and Josh since Paul Beaker came to their attention. Wouldn't they want to find out what connections, if any, Lindsay may have had to him? Yeah, and it seems like the entire town really believed that the 2003 sexual assault was related to Lindsay's disappearance in 2009. Finding him through DNA was a big deal, and enough to go and speak to Melissa and say that they felt that he was a viable suspect in her daughter's case. We've also heard through an anonymous tip that two other girls alleged that Paul Beaker walked in on them in the bathroom. Sound familiar? It sure does. Lindsay had told her mom that a man walked into the woman's bathroom on her at Beerbauer Park. Creepy coincidence or white car similarity? I don't know. I got a little zap in my brain, though, when I received those tips. The hair literally stands up on the back of my neck. Up next, Melissa talks about something we've been wondering ourselves. did a search. Why didn't they search Paul Beaker's property? That's been my biggest question. And when I asked the undersheriff that, he told me he refused. He said, I told you, I'm not discussing the case with you. That's been our biggest question, too. Well, I I asked asked the lead detective. He didn't have an answer. So when I was talking to Brad that day, I asked him, why did you not search his property the day you arrested him? That is the only thing. That doesn't even make sense to me. I told you, I'm not discussing this case with you. Once he got bailed out, where do you think he went if he had evidence out there to hide? So oh, no, not doing it the day of arrest, it's, it's pointless. Kind of like when they did Hartman's years after Lindsay disappeared. What's the point? When he was found. So if you were able to move the case, what do you think that would achieve? A good case overview or like the attorney general coming in? Yeah. A good case overview by fresh eyes that haven't been looking at it collect dust for 12 and a half years. The obligation does not end with finding the body. 
Honestly, what Melissa wants isn't that unusual. Cases are reviewed by other agencies and jurisdictions all the time. Yeah, I mean, even take the murder of 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German in Delphi, Indiana. The sheriff in that case, Tobe Lazenby, has actively sought help from other jurisdictions. And, I mean, just off the top of my head, I know that Paul Holes, who caught the Golden State Killer, did a review of the forensic evidence. And separately, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation did a case review that looks to have finally moved the investigation forward. The Delphi case is a good one to compare this with, as the families in that case have had nothing but praise for law enforcement. Unlike Melissa, they have always had great communication from that sheriff. Yeah, the investigators so inspired Libby German's sister that she's actually studying forensics herself. Oh, that's awesome. There is a feeling that this case is a hot potato, though, so I hope the AG's office is willing to take it on. Yeah, me too. Honestly, even if the AG's office doesn't take it on, how about an agency from outside of the state? I mentioned the Georgia Bureau of Investigation in relation to the Delphi uh, murder, but I've actually heard in general they have a very good reputation. And, you know, they'd have less at stake in a review of a... Uh, you know, an agency based in Washington State than, say, the Washington State AG's office. Yeah, because Washington State's small. People can get territorial here. Before we hear the final bit of that interview with Melissa, I wanted to talk about the issue of searches, specifically in the area where her remains were found. Since her remain was found, there has only been one search, and during that search, absolutely no other evidence of Lindsay's remains were found. So bizarre. And since we last discussed Manistash, we've had aspects of the autopsy shared with us. According to the autopsy, there was no signs of animal predation. So while bears may move remains, there's no sign that one did in this case. So our question is, if a bear didn't move it, then how did it get to where it was found? And why has no other part of her remains been found in what was apparently a very extensive search? It feels as though there really is a need for another search of that area. Peggy and I were actually thinking of arranging one ourselves, but like everyone else, we were stymied by beetles, I think? <laughs> Pine beetles eating the trees and the wind blowing the trees over. And it's a forest service road, so like any primitive road, it's not super well maintained. And that road has a few washout spots they're always repairing after the snowpack. So until a more extensive search is done, it's really hard to draw many conclusions from the remain that was found. The only thing we know for sure is that whoever put her there knows that area, and that area isn't that well known. I think I've asked you this before, but had you heard of it? No, never. It just seems that when we find this person, we're also going to find out that they spent some time up in Manistash. In this next section of the interview, Melissa discusses the reasons the Sheriff's Department has given to her for not sharing the case with the Attorney General's office. 
what do they have against sharing the case? They're the ones that told me they were going to be giving the case file to the attorney general's office. They told me that right after Lindsay was identified. They don't have yeah. a database that allows them to share the file. Well, yeah, how is that even possible in the 2020, 21, now we're in 22? How do all these other agencies share files? What technology or database is it? that you need so that I like I'll go to the legislatures, I'll go to the governor, I'll 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 go. I'll I'll go to Microsoft or Intel and beg them to create it. Like what is it you need that is not available? And I can't even get an answer to that simple question. All I get is we don't have the technology. We don't have a shareable database. Well I don't understand how that's possible. Even if it was possible, the Department of Justice has funding set aside specifically exactly. for that. The National but Institute of Justice. It, another agency has it. Yeah, they can get funding to hire somebody to digitize everything. Uh, well, supposedly they were doing that for several years. Huh. It started two or three years before Lindsay was identified. They had supposedly a full-time clerk that all she did was stand in and scan every single piece of information in Lindsay's file into a searchable database. That's what they were doing, oh, really? supposedly. That went on for four or five years. And then suddenly mm -hmm. that ended. I thought that was all done. But now whatever it is they've got, they can't share it. Have files. When I worked for the state 20 years ago, I could share information with other agencies within the state. What yeah. am I missing? I, 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 don't, I don't understand. That's what I've been hearing for... Um, Probably the last seven years. Office or other. Kenneth Cash Sheriff has still not seen the case file. The only piece of the case file they've seen is the piece re regarding her being found since so she was found in their jurisdiction. They have not seen the whole case file. If they need any information on Lindsay's case, they have to contact the sheriff's office in Grays Harbor to get it directly from them. They've never had access to the case file yet. I'm not trying to say that it, Paul Beaker is responsible for Lindsay because I have I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I just I I and that's what irritated me. He's trying to use that as his reason for change of venue. Uh, is I've never said I think it's Paul Beaker. Do I think that any and all rapists and pedophiles need to be locked up? Absolutely. That excuse made my blood boil. Listening to them talk about it like that was a reason to get things change as far as venue or even well, throw anything out. The thing out. is, is he thinks that moving to another county is going to alleviate the World Wide Web. Like, dude, it doesn't matter if you're in Pierce County or if you're in Clark County, Nevada. The internet is everywhere, and that's a fact of life today. So, too bad, so sad. And King County was Honestly, really the big one. I think he's going to get a better fucking trial in Grays Harbor than he's going to get somewhere else. Because oh, if they send him to Thurston County, let him send him to Thurston County. That's where I grew up. I didn't grow up in Grays Harbor. I grew up in Lacey. But the case isn't about Lindsay. They've, they have, they've, they have, if they have anything on Beaker for Lindsay, I am not aware of it. Um, other than the day he was arrested, I was told that he looked really good for it. It's interesting that they were blowing her off until Paul Beaker was arrested, but now that they have him, they haven't really done that much follow-up on him as a suspect, especially, you know, this issue of the search warrant, because, oh boy, have we asked this question a hundred times. Um, one person who's sort of in the law enforcement area of Grays Harbor has suggested that 
quite possibly the sheriff's department have requested a search warrant from the judge in the case and that the judge may in fact have turned them down. Like the judge may have thought they were on a fishing expedition? Yeah, which is exactly what it would have been and I have no problem with that. Uh, Seriously, though, I feel that with the DNA, they had more than enough to get a search warrant to see if he'd even held on to trophies from the alleged 2003 rape. And if you so happen to stumble on something related to Lindsay, oh, wells. Watching this court case, it's really starting to feel like a slow motion train wreck. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's a slow motion train wreck for the prosecution. I should add, however, that the same people I spoke to who were talking about the possibility that a um, search warrant had been applied for and rejected also says that this prosecution team has been fairly good about pursuing rape cases. Well, good, because it doesn't feel like that at the moment. I feel so bad for that poor, brave victim. It's re-traumatizing her. And in this final section of the interview, Melissa addresses the trauma that the case has had on her own life. I want justice. I want a murderer off the street. My child will never come back. She's gone forever, and there's nothing I can do to change that. And with her, win an entire future. An entire future. Not just her future, my future. My son's future. Gone. That was stolen. My son's life ruined. I was practically destroyed. I I will never be the person I was prior to June of 2009. I don't even know who that person is anymore. And all those people that do want to help, we're going to be sharing where you can find this petition so that potentially we can get somebody to look at it with those fresh eyes and maybe they'll see something, you know? Because it seems like it's gone in the toilet where it's been now, so... Uh All right. Do we have any more questions? No, other than just thanking you uh, for coming on today, Melissa. I know this shit is not easy for you. And um, I really do think that we can try to, like, I, I feel that there are enough viable people out there that they, I think that if they take another look at this case, they, that it can still be solved. I do too. It can be. It's like I believe somebody out there knows something. And for whatever reason, they just haven't come forward yet. And I don't know what that's going to take to make them come forward, but if they have a soul, they'll speak out. Because if they just keep holding it in and and protecting whoever it is they're protecting, they're soulless. Period. They're evil. Pure evil. Because only an evil person would withhold a murderer or protect a child murderer. And there's no way I, I could believe that Nobody besides the person who did it has a clue. I know my daughter had long fingernails, and she liked to use them. They were her favorite weapon against her brother. So they'd had claw mark or something, bite marks. She was a little scrapper. She wouldn't. She, there would have been a fight. Somebody, somebody saw something. Somebody suspects something or someone, and they need to come forward. And honestly, when it comes to McCleary, the time that Lindsay went missing is like 9-11 for McCleary. So I don't believe that anybody has forgotten what happened, what they were doing at that time. That's kind of how I feel about Shannon. I'm like, if Shannon has not given him a 
an alibi yet, he don't have one. Because <laughs> she knows where she was when this happened, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we haven't heard or seen anything about that, though, because ain't none of that been covered in court yet. Like, they, they've actually only managed to really have one specific hearing, which is this last one. And yeah. out of all of this, I've only heard him speak once. Yeah, same. It's me that he's able to sit there and hide behind his mask. Even the inmates in the jail are forced to remove their mask when they step up to the camera to talk to the judge. So how is he sitting in a private room or office wearing that big old mask? By he's himself. taking advantage of the situation and they're allowing it. But if they're going to make the inmates remove their mask, they need to make him remove his mask. The public has a right to know what he looks like. The thing, too, Melissa, is that... Um, I've been, I've done, a, I've spoken to a lot of victims' families, you know, over the years with different cases. You really do not make a fuss. Like, I've seen what you've done. You don't make a fuss. You've been actually very mellow with these people. I've, because I came into this from the beginning having an, an immensely large respect for law enforcement. Prior to all this, I used to think the FBI was the greatest entity on the planet. Sadly... My opinions have completely changed. Call it jaded, call it what you will. But the FBI is not all people think they are, and you can't always trust the cops to do what they need to do. They got too many other things to work on and not enough people to do it, and if you're not their priority in the moment, don't count on getting anything. I grew up being told you get more flies with honey than vinegar, but hell, my honey was extinct years ago. <laughs> and my vinegar's going bad, so what if that happened? <laughs> <laughs> and sadly i know i'm not the only parent that has these same frustrations because i talk to other parents all the time that have the exact same problems all over the country there was a, the case over in idaho with michael vaughn yeah i understand has been kind of similar as far as this woman's story isn't getting out there and it was what six months before it was even announced that he was missing we've been helping a little bit with that trying to help get that out there and we've We've given her some people to contact. Not sure where they are, but we're, we're, we are trying to help get that out there, too, because it does. It, if you're, um, I mean, I know we see a lot, and, and I've seen it. I've witnessed it, so I don't disagree with it. Um, minorities and, and indigenous women, you know, they don't get the attention up until more recently they are now, but I, they've not gotten got me um, attention they should have. But getting any attention is complicated. Unless it's a, a, a beautiful blonde beauty queen or uh, a rich family or there's a lot of drama going on. It's hard to keep it in the news because the news wants something to keep people's attention. And make so it relatable. they need that drama or they need something to focus on. And um, that gets harder and harder as the years wear on. Honestly, I still think, Melissa, that if there had been the kind of news coverage that generally happens with these kinds of cases because Lindsay had certain aspects of the typical, you know, the white girl syndrome. Like she's uh -huh. white, yeah, she's she pretty, does. she was, you know, like she, I'm actually stunned by how badly this case has been handled and how badly you've been treated because um, she should have been a case that she, her case should have been front and center in the media. And as I, you know, we've discussed this in the past, but if it wasn't for Michael Jackson dying at the same time, I think it would have been. Michael Jackson did hinder the, the national yeah. media a lot. I, I had, matter of fact, I didn't want nothing to do with Nancy Grace for about two years because of that. 
Yeah, that was bullshit, actually. Yeah, it was. I mean, I hold no ill will towards her now, but I did for a couple of years. I was really angry because the first couple of times they called me and wanted to do an interview, and I thought, okay, well, Nancy Grace is big time. Um, but then they cancel it because something else popped about Michael Jackson, and I just remember telling the producer, like, if your viewers are more interested in a dead pop star, then you just give them what they want. Don't call me again. That news was more important, and I was laughing at Lindsay, the, Lindsay and Michaela both the night before because they came into my bedroom, and Lindsay's like, oh, we're so sad. And I'm like, what are you so sad about? She's like, well, because Michael Jackson died. And I looked, and I said, Lindsay, have you ever listened to Michael Jackson? <laughs> I listened to Michael Jackson, but I don't recall Lindsay ever listening to Michael Jackson. But it was on the news, and it was sad, and so she was sad about it. <laughs> I've always been grateful that they have done what they could to help keep Lindsay in the news. But when it comes to the national, that is much harder. But again, national news was something law enforcement never really wanted. They were not big on me doing national news. Yeah, of course not. Because they were convinced <laughs> that it was a local. And I agree. I, I oh, I think it's a local too. Local. But I think that the national news gives you a lot more pressure on them. And that's what I wanted. Was I wanted national news. But they were not big on national news. Um. So they really tried to keep me from doing a lot of national news. Uh, You've actually done very little uh, media, considering how good you are at media. Because even just listening to you in this interview, like everything you're saying is the kind of thing that we call a soundbite. Like you're a soundbite machine. You just keep throwing stuff out. And if you'd been out there doing media, I think you would have... I think I did for a lot of years. Yeah. I, I did it. But then... Yeah. There was a period of time after my son went to his dad's um, and I went back to work that I, I had to um, kind of take a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, because I, I, had, I had to work at that point. I had to go back to make a living. But for two, I was in such a bad place. Like for, for three and a half years, I, I, call it my, I, I used to call it my coma. But it was like I was in shock. I wasn't even, it was like I just woke up one day about just three and a half years after she disappeared. It was like it hit me all at once. And um, so I really kind of had to almost take a step back and not do as much because I had to focus on like trying to survive, I guess, you know, build, build a life. And I was just getting to a place where things were, I was starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel in May of 2018. That was just that last year prior. I had just finally gotten to a place where I had a job that for the most part I enjoyed. It was a bit of a trigger, but I really enjoyed it. I I was in a stable living condition, which I hadn't been much after uh, Lindsay disappeared. Um, our housing stability became very, very rocky um but I was I was getting to be in a good place and then uh when I got that call it was like June of 09 all over again it completely shattered everything and then here we are four years later and we're no farther than we were I really hope that four years from now we're a lot further along 
Agreed. And we really want to thank Melissa for speaking to us about, what was it now, like about two months ago? Please check the Truth in the Shadow website so that you can sign the petition that we discussed in this show. And before we sign off, we want to bring listeners up to date on a recent development in McCleary. Yeah, recent developments in McCleary should be the name of the show. And the Justice for Lindsay Bomb Banners. Oh my God. I Just so you know, ever since I've gotten involved in this case, there's been nonstop drama about Justice for Lindsay Bomb Banners. What happened this time? Wait, wait. Was this before or after the dude in the pink wig was wandering through the cemetery trying to find Lindsay? Like maybe right around the same time. Yeah, McCleary seems to have waves of strange happening. So McCleary City Council voted to have the Justice for Lindsay Bomb banner removed from the fence of the park. One particular council member wanted all the signs of Lindsay's removed from the town. We have a little bit of audio for you to listen to here, and we'll post the link to the city council session on our website if listeners want to hear it out completely. And I think that we should take both of them down, and I think we should roll them up. I don't think it's appropriate that those be up any longer. We have the memorial. Right. And that's permanent, and that's not coming down. I think both of those banners, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm hearing too much about these banners in town, and people don't like to. And you go to the park, and you see that. And there's children playing there, you know. Down. So I think we should take them down. They're on city property. If somebody asks, say, well, we took them down. You're welcome to pick them up. Wow, so they took the banners down? They took the banners down and they made a different banner for the police store. So what does the banner for the police store look like? Uh, I believe we have some pictures of it on the website. Uh, It's a large picture of her face, but I believe that they took out the word murdered. Who murdered me? Because that seemed to be a big issue for that city council member especially. They didn't want the word murdered in there. Yeah, know. just to give people an idea of what these yeah. banners look like, it's a the, the banners that the city council member had an issue with is a they're very large banners with a picture of Lindsay's face and it says, Who murdered me? And they are all over there are banners and posters all over <sighs> McCleary. And you know, it is it, the case is definitely present there. It was an interesting backlash was the show's support from all the community members, really. The advocates had new signs created, and the signs began cropping up in tons of yards. You can always count on McCleary for drama. <laughs> and now for our Shit We Want to Know. On this episode, Shit We Want to Know, we'll be putting up a missing flyer that was made for Lindsay and asking if anyone can tell us who made it. We'll be putting the flyer on our website, truthintheshadow.com. But just to give you guys an idea of what this flyer looks like, it's basically a map of Washington State with Lindsay's photo on it, and along the bottom are cartoon cars. Did we ever get any tips on last episode, should we want to know? We'd asked listeners if they'd ever heard of a case where a kidnapped victim's remains were found that far away from where they were taken. Not correlating to this case, there was no outside tips on that, but I did find one, and we're going to talk about it in a future episode. It's going to tie in with a suspect we haven't talked about yet, and I want to give our listeners a very accurate timeline. So while I'm researching that, feel free to send us possible correlating cases to kidnap victims' remains being found 100-plus miles away. 
And coming up, we're going to be doing an episode of persons of interest that we haven't discussed yet. We have a fair amount of names that listeners have provided to us that are actually pretty good candidates, and we believe completely off of law enforcement's radar. That's going to need to be a two-parter. Even with a team of volunteers, it's been a massive amount of information to gather. Did you receive any tips about the Menestash Ridge that we should address? Yes. I spoke with the Dirty Mountain Goats. They're an off-roading team that have taken video of one of the warming cabins that's up on Manistash Ridge. Yeah, basically they have these small structures that hunters can use in the winter to overnight in, basically, and as the name suggests, warm themselves. The Dirty Mountain Goats said that the cabin's well-known and that it often has people in and around it. Now, they did find blood, porn, and weed in the cabin, and there is a little room within the cabin that can be locked. But the risk of being found in the commission of a crime would be insanely high for a summer weekend. Yeah, and it sounds like we may know who signed that notebook as well. We found a man who lived at the base of Manistash with the initials NJF, whose home was foreclosed on July 2009, so perhaps that was what his guilt was about. It could be. But just to throw in some more speculation, a woman who is tied to another suspect we recently found has the same initials, so... Another white car? Exactly. That brings us to the end of this episode of Truth in the Shadow. Please reach out to us about this episode's shit we want to know or anything else related to the show. Yeah, keep up all the hard work. We literally could not do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. Fucking did it. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah.